We live in a juristocracy, my friend, and we are only just beginning to see the downstream consequences of it. Yeah. Mark Joseph Stern was right. As usual. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hey. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, it's The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. On the internet, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much, and hello, Desi Doyen. Hello. We have both been uh, swinging to and fro all day, <laughs> all morning long. Yeah, there are at least five shows we had planned. Yeah. But this is the show you're getting. This is the show, and I don't know if it's a good one, I don't know if it's the right one, but uh, as news, news kept breaking all day today... Pretty much everything we had planned to cover on the first try, the second try, and the third try has all now been put off, maybe, to our next program. In the meantime, let's start here. Public service announcement. Because someone has to give a damn about public health now uh, that it's not going to be our juristocracy on the Supreme Court. For those who live here in Los Angeles County, a public service, public health announcement, though I believe it's the best public health advice I have seen anywhere over the past week for everyone in the country. Amid a dramatic surge in COVID-19 infections, Los Angeles County's public health director on Wednesday urged residents to avoid non-essential activities, non-essential activities in the coming weeks, particularly those that are indoors and involve uh, involve mingling with unvaccinated or higher risk people. Fueled by the Omicron variant of COVID-19, the county is experiencing pandemic high levels of daily infection reports now and the highest rate of virus transmission to date. Of course, almost every county in the U.S. today is also now experiencing pandemic high levels of daily infections and hospitalizations. So, frankly, I share this as good advice, I believe, everywhere in the country today. 
While we are in the surge, we do ask that you exercise more caution, even if you're vaccinated and boosted. L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer said one way to reduce transmission is to wear a high quality mask whenever you're around non-household members. We're also asking that over the next few weeks, we all try to avoid non-essential activities where people are unmasked and in close contact with others. The reality is that parties and events, especially those indoors, she says, with unvaccinated individuals or those at high risk for severe illness, make it very easy for this virus to spread, limiting our time with others to those more essential Work-related or school-related activities is a prudent action for everyone to take whenever possible, again, over the next few weeks. I'll explain why in a second, but her comments come as state figures here in California showed the number of COVID-positive patients in county hospitals rising to more than 3,700. That is up from more than 3,400 just the day before. The number of those patients in intensive care rose to 513. That was up from 482 one day earlier. While the nation is seeing pandemic records for hospitalizations, even though many are regarding the Omicron variant as, oh, it's less severe or less lethal, Uh, Its increased transmissibility means way more people are getting sick, particularly the unvaccinated. And now, once again, death tolls across the U.S. are on the rise. While daily COVID infections have more than doubled, doubled nationwide over the past two weeks, according to Axios, reaching an average of more than 760,000 new infections every day in the U.S., COVID deaths are also on the rise, up from about 1,200 per day two weeks ago to an average of more than 1,700 deaths per day right now. They note that uh, if Washington, D.C. was a state, it would be the only state in the country where new infections are now slowing down. All 50 of the actual states saw new cases increase over the past two weeks, and most of those increases were very large. And the pace of COVID deaths may continue to rise over the coming weeks. Compared to previous variants, Omicron appears to kill a much smaller proportion of the people that it infects. But, of course, it infects many more people. Yeah, the same idea as before. A very large number of people being infected, even if only a small number of them get seriously ill, a small percentage of a very large number is itself a very large number. Cities with uh, cities that were hit with uh, early Omicron surges saw increases in covid deaths lagging uh, just a few weeks behind their spikes in actual cases, according to The New York Times. But there may be some brighter news, at least on the horizon here, which is why I wanted to share the warning from the L.A. County Public Health Director, essentially saying, hey, if you can hold out for just the next few weeks from activities involving dangerous exposure indoors with, you know, crowded, a lot of people and so forth. 
uh, and unvaccinated people, if you can just hold out a few more weeks, we might be able to make it through to the other side here. Because evidence now continues to suggest that the Omicron variant, while still surging, may also come down in the next few weeks, perhaps, if we're lucky, almost as quickly as it spiked. According to the New York Times today, the number of new COVID-19 cases in New York City rose more than 20-fold in December. In the past few days, it has flattened. Now, it has not disappeared, but it is no longer increasing at that alarming rate. It has begun to stay steady, which traditionally has precipitated a decrease in cases. In both New Jersey and Maryland, they write the number of new cases has fallen slightly this week, slightly, which, along with New York City, they were the uh, early to catch the Omicron surge. In several, several major cities, the number is also showing signs of leveling off, though I should add, not yet here in Los Angeles, where it is still rising Yes, at an alarming rate. But there are uh, still more encouraging signs here. In Boston, the amount of COVID virus detected in wastewater, which has been a leading indicator of case trends in the past, has now plunged. Oh, I get it. Wastewater plunged. <laughs> anyway, uh, has now plunged by about 40 percent since its peak just after January 1. In fact, as quickly as it rose in Boston, it is now falling off, at least according to the wastewater indicators, which have been a very accurate barometer throughout the pandemic. Dr. Shira Doran, an epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center, uh, said, we really try not to ever make any predictions about this virus because it always throws us for a loop. Uh, she cautioned, at least the wastewater is suggesting a steep decline. And so we hope that means cases will decline steeply as well. And then hospitalizations and deaths will follow. But a huge surge in cases that lasts for about one month, followed by a very rapid decline, would be consistent with the experience in some places where Omicron arrived earlier than in the U.S. In South Africa, for example, new daily cases have fallen by about 70 percent from the mid-December peak. The chart showing uh, South Africa's recent trend looks like a very, very skinny upside down V, letter V which is good news if that happens everywhere else. With previous versions of COVID, like Delta, the up and down cycle tended to last much longer. Once an outbreak began, cases often rose for about two months before falling. Ali Mokdad, a professor of health metric sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle, told the AP he believed the true number of U.S. US cases including those not in, uh, including those not included currently in any official tally has already peaked that would be good news if so he said uh, it has already peaked probably last week it's going to come down as fast as it went up he predicted so to be clear the current emergency is not on the verge of ending at least not immediately, cases appear to be peaking 
only in the places where Omicron arrived early, mostly in the northeast. In much of the country, cases are still soaring. Many hospitals are swamped, and hospitalization trends often trail caseload trends by about a week. Death trends tend to lag by another couple of weeks. So uh, those death numbers could still go up, even if we are working our way through to the uh, to the other side. It's going to be a tough two or three weeks, Mokhtad said. The U.S. seems on course for a horrific amount of severe illness in coming weeks, overwhelmingly among the unvaccinated. But still, the beginning of the end of the Omicron wave, if it turns out to be real, would in fact be very good news. So hang in there. The next few weeks is the time to be most cautious if you can. Signs uh, suggest that things will be getting better, barring surprises, and they happen a lot with COVID, but things may be easing up in just the next few weeks. If you can hang in there, this won't last forever, at least we hope. And uh, there are now uh, signs that suggest as much, but it's going to be up to you to take these precautions and to get yourself vaccinated and boosted if you haven't already. Because today, the Supreme Court has yet again gutted the ability for the Biden administration to protect the general welfare. You know, that little, that quaint little saying in the U.S. Constitution. Don't know if you've read it lately. Don't know if the justices sitting on the Supreme Court have read it lately. But on yesterday's broadcast, Legal reporter and Supreme Court expert Mark Joseph Stern of Slate joined us to discuss the two Biden administration COVID vaccine mandates that were heard before the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday uh, in emergency oral arguments as opponents of the two different mandates, one one of them for uh, large employer employers of more than 100 workers requiring all employees to either be vaccinated or get tested weekly and the other mandate. Uh, for all health care workers at facilities that receive federal Medicare or Medicaid money uh, to get vaccinated. Mark Joseph Stern offered his opinion on how this far right stolen and packed GOP court would decide in both of those cases in the emergency applications by Republican attorneys general for emergency stays in both cases. Here's what Mark had to say. So I think it's very likely that a majority of the court will block the employer mandate, which, as you noted, is not actually a vaccine mandate, but a vaccinate or test mandate. Nonetheless, it seems like five or six of the Republican-appointed justices are prepared to invalidate most or all of that policy. Uh, I'm not so sure about the other mandate, which applies to most health care workers in the United States, and for the record, does include robust exemptions for medical and religious purposes. Exemptions that I personally think are too broad, but there you have it. Um, it seemed like some of the Republican-appointed justices, like Kavanaugh and Roberts, understood that clearly Congress envisioned this kind of latitude when it gave the executive branch very broad powers to regulate the use of Medicare and Medicaid money. Whether they will follow that reasoning to its logical conclusion and uphold this mandate as a perfectly legitimate exercise of executive discretion remains to be seen. Well, 
As usual, that was Mark Joseph Stern on this program yesterday. As usual, our guests on the broadcast get it exactly right. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, yeah, and he's not the only one. They always do, except for the one who was arrested for seditious conspiracy today. But I'll get to that one later. <laughs> Late this afternoon, the court stayed the employer mandate, the uh, 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 vac- vaccinate or test mandate pending trial in a lower court and allowed the healthcare worker mandate to remain in place narrowly, just as Mark said. And in fact, uh, it was uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh who came along with uh, Justice John Roberts uh, for a five to four majority on that. Wow, Mark really got that on the nose. He nailed it. The Supreme Court has stopped the Biden administration from enforcing a requirement that employees at large businesses be vaccinated against COVID-19 or undergo weekly testing and wear a mask on the job. As AP reports it, at the same time, the court is allowing the administration to proceed with a vaccine mandate for most health care workers in the U.S. The court's conservative majority, they write, concluded the administration overstepped its authority by seeking to impose the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's vaccine or test rule on U.S. businesses with at least 100 employees. More than 80 million people would have been affected. So, Looking at the opinion here, because there were a lot of points that could have been and, in fact, may have been very disturbing in the uh, justices ruling on this matter, not just for Biden's covid mandate, but for a whole bunch of other stuff, which we discussed yesterday uh, with Mark Joseph Stern in the uh, what was well, what Steve Bannon described as the deconstruction of the administrative state. Make no mistake, that is very much underway. Uh, The majority opinion here notes before striking down the employer mandate, quote, OSHA is tasked with ensuring occupational safety. That is, quote, safe and healthful working conditions. It does so by enforcing occupational safety and health standards promulgated by the secretary. Such standards may be, quote, reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe and healthful employment They must also be developed using a rigorous process that includes notice, comment, and an opportunity for public hearing. The act, however, contains an exception to those ordinary notice and comment procedures for emergency temporary standards, which is what the Biden administration was trying to put in place here. Such standards, they note, may take a quote, take immediate effect upon publication in the Federal Register. These quotes uh, is is the majority opinion quoting from the actual statute that gives OSHA the ability uh, to put in place this mandate. They are permissible, however, only in the narrowest of circumstances. The secretary must show, one, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and two, that the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Now, when I read this today, I'm thinking, wait a minute, these guys struck down this mandate? They seem to be making the argument here as to why OSHA has every right to make this mandate. Yeah, I mean, only what, 
800,000 people dead? Yeah, it would seem like that would be uh, underneath this A new hazard, physically harmful, protect employees from such danger, yeah. And as the majority argues, applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the uh, applicants are the ones who are charging, uh, challenging this uh, mandate. They're likely to succeed in the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority to impose the mandate. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided. The secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no, quote, everyday exercise of federal power. It is instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of a vast number of employees. Yes, the vast number of employees who could be killed by COVID on the job. The uh, court goes on to write, the question then is whether the act plainly authorizes the secretary's mandate. It does not. They write the act empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. So, you know, as I am reading this, it feels as if they're saying, well, this affects a whole bunch of people, not just people uh, who, who go to work. Therefore, OSHA can't say anything about it, can't keep those workers safe. The majority writes the dissent protests that we are. This is uh, referring to the 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 dissenters here, the uh, three liberals on the court. I'll get to that in a bit. The dissent protests that we are imposing a limit found no place in the governing statute. Not so. The majority says it is the text of the agency's organic act that repeatedly makes clear that OSHA is charged with regulating occupational that's in quotes, occupational hazards and the safety and health of, quote, employees. The Solicitor General does not dispute that OSHA is limited to regulating work-related dangers. She instead argues that the risk of contracting COVID-19 qualifies as such a danger. We cannot agree. Although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard in most. Huh? COVID-19 can and does spread at home, they write, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else that people gather. Therefore, we shouldn't try it in any way whatsoever to protect people in a place that we regulate, the workplace, from these hazards. Correct. That makes no sense. They say that kind of universal, universal risk is no different from the day-to-day dangers that all face from crime air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases, permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. So because this affects so many people in so many places, OSHA therefore has no right to do anything about it at all in the places that it oversees, in the places that it regulates, regulates like the workplace. That is actually what they are arguing here. Sorry, essential workers, grocery store workers, and all of the people who have worked so hard during this pandemic to keep society running. Yeah, too bad. The too- Supreme Court's death panel says no. Yeah, yeah. Too bad. Too bad you, you you can catch COVID elsewhere. Otherwise, we'd, we'd help you out. But, you know, 
They write, it is telling that OSHA, in its half century of existence, has never adopted a broad public health regulation of this kind. Well, that's correct, because this is a once-in-a-century pandemic. We haven't had a pandemic like this for a hundred years, ya dopes. So yes, in its half-century of existence, it hasn't. OSHA hasn't had to uh, put something in place like this. It's telling that in their half-century, they've never adopted something so broad, addressing a threat that is untethered in any casual sense from the workplace. This lack of historical precedent, coupled with the breadth of authority that the secretary now claims, is a telling indication that the mandate extends beyond the agency's legitimate reach. The application for stays presented to Justice Kavanaugh and by him referred to the court are granted. So, in other words, the uh, employer mandate is shot down. On that basis that I just shared with you, these are the great minds of our juristocracy. And then there was a concurrence uh, written by uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch with Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, which goes still farther to argue, as I read it and as Mark Joseph Stern warned, that the court is gunning for the destruction of the administrative state entirely here. Thankfully, this is only uh, the three justices, Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito, who seem to be signing on to this. But the. The, the, the gutting of the ability for experts at executive branch agencies, even though they are created by Congress to make any rules or regulations at all, uh, they want to, you know, in their mandate. Yeah, necessary the, to carry out the law the, so that Congress doesn't have to try to carry it out itself. Right. But the justices are saying, no, unless it's expressly mentioned. Uh, they can't do it. For example, when OSHA was created decades ago, uh, Congress failed to mention the word COVID pandemic. So OSHA has no right to regulate the safety of workers in such a pandemic unless Congress gets back to work and passes a law to specifically mention COVID. We discussed this yesterday with uh, with with Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, the concurring justices here relied on uh, mostly on the so-called major questions doctrine, striking down OSHA's ability to act here, which is really scary because this doctrine can also be used to strike down any regulation for any reason that, well, far right justices may want it to. Essentially, they're saying if there is a major question uh, at stake here, if there is, uh, I guess, a, a big challenge to any particular thing. Well, in that case, uh, the, the agency uh, doesn't have the authority. In their concurring opinion, Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito argue that the employer mandate fails the major questions doctrine because there's just too much of a question about whether they can do this or not. A doctrine uh, that those three so-called constitutional original originalists don't seem to care uh, that, as as Mark noted, actually appears nowhere at all in the Constitution. It is completely made up that unlike, for example, the general welfare clause, which actually mandates the federal government protect the general welfare. 
Gorsuch writes in the concurrence, this court is not a public health authority, but it is charged with resolving disputes about which authorities possess the power to make the laws that govern us under the Constitution and the laws of the land. Really? Really? Charged by whom, Justice Gorsuch? Because this imaginary charge that the Supreme Court should resolve disputes real or imagined by right-wing opportunists who oppose really any executive authority to do anything at all, at least when the executive is a Democrat, uh, this this you know imaginary charge that the Supreme Court should resolve disputes between Congress and the executive branch, well, that charge... Uh, for the Supreme Court to to solve those disputes is actually also nowhere to be found in the U.S. Constitution. Now, Gorsuch also cited uh, the other doctrine that uh, Mark had told us to look out for, the non-delegation doctrine, uh, which is they, they said basically either one, either one is good. Take your pick. Uh, the non-delegation doctrine essentially says that uh, you, you can't delegate it to the executive to the executive branch agency to figure this out. You can't let the you can't leave this to the experts to figure out the experts that Congress have put in place to figure out what these regulations should be and what things should actually be regulated. Uh, Gorsuch writes, whichever the doctrine. Apparently, the justices, they don't care. They just want to shut it all down. Whichever the doctrine, the point is the same. Both serve to, both of them serve to prevent government by bureaucracy supplanting government by the people. A bureaucracy, they fail to note, that was uh, hired by an elected administration that can face consequences for their actions at the ballot box. But it's more convenient to deride these political appointees as not a part of government by the people, but they're just some bureaucracy who is taking control of the country, unelected bureaucracy. Gorsuch writes, the, the question before us is not how to respond to the pandemic, but who holds the power to do so? The answer is clear. Under the law, as it stands today, that power rests with the states and Congress, not OSHA. They write, in other words... With Congress, who has zero expertise in public health matters versus the executive agency that was created by Congress in this case to be filled with hundreds of, in this case, public health experts, but issue experts on the issues that Congress has mandated them to oversee and regulate. So it's 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 not up to the experts it's up to Congress who are not expert experts in any of this. And apparently it, it's up to the the judges themselves. It's up to, to the judiciary to make the choice. Uh, should it be the experts or should it be the non-experts? And this if it case, means some people die, oh, well, too bad. Now, the dissent jointly written in this case, which I understand is very rare, by Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan uh, includes uh, includes this. Underlying everything else in this dispute is a single simple question. Who decides how much protection and of what kind American workers need from COVID-19? An agency with expertise in workplace health and safety acting as Congress and the president authorized or a court 
lacking any knowledge of how to safeguard workplaces and insulated from responsibility for any damages that it causes, right? Because they have lifetime appointments. The dissenters write here, an agency charged by Congress with safeguarding employees from workplace dangers has decided that action is needed. The agency has thoroughly evaluated the risks that the disease poses to workers across all sectors of the economy. It has considered the extent to which various policies will mitigate those risks and the costs those policies will entail. It has landed on an approach that encourages vaccination but allows employers to use masking and testing instead. It has meticulously explained why it has reached its conclusion, and in doing all this, it has acted within the four corners of its statutory authorization, or actually here, its statutory mandate, they write. OSHA, that is, has responded in the way necessary to alleviate the, quote, grave danger that workplace exposure, that workplace exposure to the, quote, new hazard, of COVID-19 poses to employees across the nation, just as the statute says. The agency's standard is informed by a half century of experience and expertise in handling workplace health and safety issues. The standard also has the virtue of political accountability, for OSHA is responsible to the president, and the president is responsible to and can be held accountable by the American people. And then there is this court, they write. Its members are elected by and accountable to no one. And we lack the background competence and expert, expertise to assess workplace health and safety issues. When we are wise, they write, we know enough to defer on matters like this one. When we are wise, we know not to displace the judgment of experts acting within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control to deal with emergency conditions. Today, they write, we are not wise. In the face of a still raging pandemic, this court tells the agency charged with protecting worker safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed. As disease and death continue to mount, this court tells the agency that it cannot respond in the most effective way possible. Without legal basis, the court usurps a decision that rightfully belongs to others. It undercuts the capacity of the responsible federal officials acting well within the scope of their authority to protect American workers from grave danger. That was the dissent in the U.S. Supreme Court today, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan in the 6-3 to three majority Republican uh, stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court, cutting down the, uh, the ability for OSHA to mandate vaccines or tests for American workers. Now, uh, the vaccine mandate that the court will allow to be enforced nationwide, that's the health care mandate that barely scraped by on a five to four vote. Chief Justice John Roberts and, yes, Justice Brett Kavanaugh joined the liberals to form a majority there. Barely. The mandate covers virtually all health care workers in the country. Applying to providers that receive federal Medicare and Medicaid funding, which is almost all of them. That potentially affects 76,000 healthcare workers 
uh, I'm sorry, healthcare facilities, as well as home healthcare providers. The rule has medical and religious exemptions. Uh, we talked about it with Mark Joseph Stern yesterday, but next month the court has decided to hear a challenge to Obama's clean power plan. Yes, Obama's clean power plan. And this is one of the reasons why this is much about much more than simply the the Biden covid uh, vaccine mandates. This is about much more. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided they want to hear Obama's clean power plan, even though it never actually went into effect. It would have allowed the EPA to mandate power plants around the nation to move away from coal and to a clean or, or cleaner sources of energy. But uh, it was challenged and it was uh, stayed, I believe. Yes, it was. It never went into effect. So the fact that SCOTUS has now decided to take up that case, even though it never went into effect because it was stayed, Years later, they want to decide whether it's constitutional or not or not. I do not see that as a good sign. It suggests that they also wish to constrain, in this case, the EPA's authority as an executive branch agency charged by congressional statute with protecting Americans under the Clean Air Act. To prevent them from exercising their expertise in this area, because Congress never mentioned carbon when they passed the Clean Air Act or benzene or mercury or anything that they didn't mention, they can just cut it off at the knees. That seems to be where this court is headed, as we discussed yesterday. And that, as we also discussed, is what Steve Bannon meant by the destruction of the administrative state. And it is coming. In fact, as I think we may now be able to argue, it is here. That's what happens when you allow a party to game the electoral system with gerrymandering so that they can game the, the court system itself by preventing a sitting president from seating a Supreme Court justice and then change the rules of the Senate, reform the filibuster to allow the Republican majority to steal the majority on the Supreme Court and pack it. But that is where we are right now. Uh, we uh, we heard from uh, a few days ago Charles Freed, Ronald Reagan's 86-year-old Republican Supreme Court Solicitor General, uh, who said this all starts with gerrymandering and the inability to remove uh, elected officials because the way they have gamed the maps, and this is where it ends up. And he recognizes all of this because he says he was born in Prague in 1936, where they used to have 50 years of a democracy until they didn't anymore because he saw the demons of hell rising and he is seeing them rising again here. Well, the good news this afternoon is that at least some of those demons are now being charged with seditious conspiracy. It's now the Oath Keeper's time in the barrel, as the most serious charges to date from the Justice Department have now been filed in response to Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election by sending his supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. That story is next, I think, on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. We had planned to cover a whole bunch of democracy stuff today, but oh well. Uh, although somehow this is democracy stuff. Yes, it, it is, yeah. actually. Uh, I am not certain, but I think that today was the first time that any former guest on the Bradcast was actually arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy. Breaking our perfect record. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping it will be the last time. But who knows? If I was Heather Digby Parton, I would watch my back at this <laughs> point. Uh, anyway, yes, Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group, has been arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy in the attack on the U.S. Capitol, according to authorities on Thursday. Rhodes, uh, I looked back, was actually my guest on the broadcast way back in January of 2016. The, uh, he had uh, sort of turned on the Eamon Bundy uh, and the Bundy clan. Remember this? After they took over the Malheur Wildlife Refuge from the federal government and held it hostage. Yep, up in Oregon. For a few weeks in Oregon. Yeah, back in uh, late 2015, early uh, 2016. That was nuts. That was nuts. Which part? The broadcast interview or the <laughs> taking over Malheur? Now that you mention it, both. Yeah, I know. It was a it was a, a lively and, as I recall, testy interview at times with the conspiracy theorist and founder of the Oath Keepers. I'll uh, I'll try to link to it when I post today's show. If you want to go back and give it a listen. In any event, Rhodes and ten other people were also charged with seditious conspiracy in connection with the attack on January six. 2021, when authorities said uh, members of the extremist group came to Washington intent on stopping the certification of Joe Biden's victory. These are the first charges of seditious conspiracy that the Justice Department has brought in connection with the attack led by supporters of former disgraced one term, twice impeached President Donald Trump. But hopefully not the last of the charges. But it is what investigative journalist and blogger Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel had predicted was likely to happen very soon. Just a few weeks ago on this program, during an interview with uh, guest host Nicole Sandler, Marcy noted that the DOJ was closing in on the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, uh, the militias, as, as barely one step away from Donald Trump through folks like Alex Jones and Roger Stone, who helped carry out and organize what then happened on January 6th. She explained that the DOJ and, yes, Attorney General Merrick Garland were carefully working their way from the bottom up, from the easier cases to the more difficult, more serious ones with more serious charges. The first group of arrests on seditious conspiracy would seem to fit that bill. And as serious as those charges are, it may well be that those charges will now uh, th those charged will now uh, really prefer to cut a deal with DOJ in some fashion, cooperate with them to point out who it was, if anyone, that they were working with, working from the bottom up. 
Recall that some of the Proud Boys, for example, who were arrested uh, for January 6th, had also served as security guards for Roger Stone on January 5th at that rally in D.C., the day before the insurrection. And once you get to Roger Stone, you're not even a step away at that point from, from Donald Trump. So Rhodes of Granbury, Texas, and Edward Vallejo of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, were both arrested on Thursday. The others who were charged were already facing criminal charges related to the attack. As Marcy had also explained a few weeks ago uh, on the show, some of those arrested on lesser charges were likely to receive additional and more serious charges. Well, now they have. So uh, this would be going along just as she predicted it would, as she explained why she, at least, was not yet impatient with the speed at which Garland and the DOJ were moving. Rhodes, of course, is the highest ranking member of any extremist group to be arrested in the deadly siege, at least so far. The arrest of Rhodes and the others, as AP describes it, is a serious escalation of the accusations against the thousands of rioters who stormed the Capitol. Uh, I would argue it's a uh, serious escalation in good and encouraging news. They also write the charges answer in part a growing chorus of Republicans who have publicly questioned the seriousness of the January 6th insurrection, arguing that since no one had been charged with sedition or treason, it couldn't have been so violent. How they'd you know spin that argument uh, takes some pretty serious disingenuousness. But that's what the GOP is now known for. Uh, Rhodes did not enter the Capitol building himself on January 6th, but is accused of helping put into motion the violence that disrupted the certification of the vote. The Oath Keepers case is the largest conspiracy case federal authorities uh, have brought so far over January 6th. In other January 6th related news, just before airtime for yesterday's broadcast, the House Select Committee investigating that attack and that attempt to steal the presidential election requested an interview with House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who had at least one heated conversation with Donald Trump during the uh, insurrection. He's the one who's described it as heated. When McCarthy uh, uh, asserted on that phone call to the outgoing president that it was Trump's supporters who had raided the Capitol, Trump replied famously, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. Now, that account of that phone call was shared by Congresswoman uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, a Republican from Washington state. She publicly revealed her conversation with McCarthy, who told her what was said on that call, uh, ahead of the impeachment proceedings last year, back in February of 2021, in which the majority of the U.S. Senate, you'll recall, including seven Republicans, found that, in fact, yes, Trump was guilty of inciting that insurrection for which he has, uh, beyond that, paid no price. McCarthy has not disputed the account from the congresswoman. In a statement, however, issued uh, on Wednesday, just after we got off air, McCarthy said he would not cooperate with the request from the bipartisan House panel. He replied, "Uh, I, I don't have anything really to add. Oh, this was back in December. Yeah, in back in December in an interview, 
with the California media outlet uh, when he was asked whether he would testify before the panel. He replied, I don't have anything really to add. I have been very public, but I wouldn't hide from anything either. Well, apparently he is now hiding. (laughs) Surprise. Asked whether the panel would now subpoena McCarthy to ensure his compliance. The committee chair, Benny Thompson, told reporters, quote, we will consider it. So uh, he says he will not cooperate, even though he said he has got nothing to hide. So this story as well will continue. Thompson said the select panel is particularly interested in McCarthy's changing tone around his characterization of Trump's action during the riot. He used to be upset about it. Not not so much anymore. Thompson added that uh, members intended to or intend to ask him whether Trump or his allies suggested, quote, what you should say publicly during the impeachment trial if called as a witness. Oh, witness tampering? Or in any later investigation about your conversations with him on January 6th. The committee would like to know that very much. But the panel, uh, based on their letter to McCarthy, inviting him for an interview and to turn over documents voluntarily, they made clear they already have a lot of the goods on him based on the thousands of other documents than hundreds of other witnesses that have already they've already spoken to. Interviewed on CNN last night, Carl Bernstein of the famous uh, Watergate's Woodward and Bernstein said that uh, that what is being uncovered here by the January 6th committee is far, far worse than what they saw in the Watergate scandal that brought down Richard Nixon. What do you think McCarthy's going to do? I think he's going to stonewall that we're witnessing a cover up by the leadership of the Republican Party of a conspiracy to undermine the democratic system. There's never been anything in our history in this country like it. You have to go back to the Civil War to see a political party that was as seditious as we're exhibiting now in the Republican Party. In the Civil War, it was part of the Democratic Party. But never have we had a seditious president of the United States who sought to stage a coup. And now that coup and the cover-up of it has been embraced by Leader McCarthy, by Leader McConnell. It is something unlike anything we've seen in this country before. And it is not only a disgrace, but if you look at this letter, I've read it now, it's fascinating. Uh, They have the goods. This investigation has the goods. They know what McCarthy said to a large extent to Donald Trump on January 6th. And McCarthy has lied about it since. So we have a real conspiracy, a real cover up, real stonewalling in excess of anything we saw in Watergate. That's Carl Bernstein saying that this is a cover up in excess of anything that he saw in Watergate. Worse than Watergate. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed. But the good news, he says the uh, January 6th panel has the goods. We'll see what they do with the goods. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and our latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All 
I'm just sitting here thinking about all the things we didn't cover today I that know. we couldn't cover today. It's way that we too much, to. way too fast. But that's okay. That's okay. We do what we can, uh, as do you, in our latest Green News report. That's enough to power two million homes. Offshore wind leases are on the horizon for the East Coast. World's oceans were the warmest in recorded history in 2021 for the third year in a row. Plus, Biden EPA cracks down on toxic coal ash waste pits. All of that toxic news and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Our, our role on climate change is, is a limited one, but it's an important one. And it is to assure that the banking institutions that we regulate understand their risks and can manage them. Where some unexpected government policy uh, change happens, which which could potentially create disruption. Wait, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, you're more worried about disruption to banks from government policies than from climate change? Got it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the 2021 temperature records keep coming in, don't they? Yes, they do. The day after Europe's Climate Service announced that the past seven years have been the hottest in recorded history, we now have another temperature record. 2021 was the hottest year on record for the oceans since scientists began tracking ocean heat in the 1950s. Are they boiling yet? No, not yet. But it is yet another sign of the long-term warming trend driven primarily by humanity's use of planet-heating fossil fuels. According to new research published this week, the past five years have been the five hottest for Earth's oceans. Since the late 1980s, oceans have been warming eight times faster than in preceding decades. It matters because warming oceans supercharge extreme weather like storms and hurricanes, accelerate rising sea levels through thermal expansion, and threaten the marine food supply. A lot of the heat that was expected in the atmosphere, we have since learned, has now been sucked into the ocean, so they're warming at an even greater rate. Yes, that's correct. 2021 was also one of the costliest years for natural disasters globally. Reinsurance company Munich Re on Monday put the overall cost of economic losses from natural disasters worldwide last year at $280 billion. That's uninsured losses, more than a third of insured losses were caused by just two storms, Hurricane Ida in the U.S. and the July flash floods in Europe. Now, why isn't Fed Chair Jerome Powell more worried about that than the potential risk of government policy gone awry? That's a great question. Thank you. Weather extremes in Brazil are contributing to global price increases. Bloomberg News reports that extreme weather events in Brazil have added fuel to a spike in inflation, pushing up costs for everything from soybeans to metals. In southern Brazil, heat and drought are hammering global commodity crops like soybeans and oilseed, which is used to make everything from cooking oil to animal feed. In the north, extreme rainfall has flooded mines, forcing them to close 
flows, affecting the global supply chain. Any concerns, Jerome Powell? But some good news. The Biden Environmental Protection Agency is cracking down on toxic coal ash waste. Millions of tons of toxic waste is generated every year as a byproduct of burning coal for electricity. It's stored in unlined coal ash waste pits that can leak toxins like mercury, cadmium, and arsenic into the environment, including into fresh water sources near power plants. Mmm, delicious. There are an estimated 500 coal ash ponds in the United States, and this is the first time the federal government has acted to force the coal power industry to clean up pollution of groundwater from coal ash, which is the leading source of water pollution in the United States. The move could also lead to early retirement of polluting coal plants in the Midwest. Good. I hope it doesn't affect any of the banks. Finally, the Interior Department announced this week that it will hold its first offshore wind lease sale. Next month, companies will be able to bid on wind power development leases for nearly half a million acres off the coasts of New York and New Jersey. Interior Secretary Deb Holland told reporters the lease sale will be key to developing a robust domestic offshore wind supply chain and includes innovative stipulations that require developers to make every reasonable effort to ensure projects are built with union labor and source components from domestic manufacturers. Interior estimates projects in one lease area alone will generate up to seven gigawatts of clean, emissions-free electricity. That's enough to power two million homes. We also expect this will create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs in the region. That sounds like good news. Gosh, I hope that doesn't throw off anybody at the banks. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today because I was so irritated with Jerome Powell, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Boy, howdy, ain't that true. Uh, Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. uh, And thanks to all of you at home for joining us today for another thrilling broadcast. It's greatly appreciated. Always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. But hey, while you're there, as we are getting ready to celebrate, I think, our 18th anniversary of bradblog.com, do please consider... Uh, clicking on the uh, one of those donate links or just go to bradblog.com slash donate. Sign up for a monthly automated uh, subscription if you can of any amount you like or uh, just a one-time donation. They are all appreciated and all very much needed right now. All right. Uh, my, you can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>